This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being here, everybody. Welcome, each and every one of you, all of you happy warriors, eager devotees, of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. All of you spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic, secular socialism and all the many evil social pathologies that it generates. When I promise to reveal how the world really works, it's in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans in history who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome. Those hideous hermaphrodites running our media, education, and government bureaucracies who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. But, oh, what damage they manage to inflict. Never fear. Here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, we can transform timidity to triumph. We will replace diffidence with determination and displace the divided counsels of doubt with the hard eyes and firm hearts of those who know where we are going and we're going to get there. We strive for success first with our families, then our finances and our friends, after which we will be ready to take on the formidable task of saving our frighteningly fragile civilization from those who would force us to surrender our freedoms and our souls to the whims and dictates of those who consider themselves to be our superiors, our elites, our betters, our bosses, and our rulers. And their ability to do so is unfortunately strengthened by the fact that we have suffered an epidemic of materialism. 
Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you know how an earthquake causes quite predictable consequences. Uh, if there is going to be an earthquake, then we've got a pretty good idea that there'll be broken mains, water mains, broken gas mains. There might be some fires, some collapsed bridges, some damaged freeways and buildings. If it's in a coastal area, there might even be a tsunami. Earthquakes bring consequences. Well, if a virus is let loose, there are also consequences. We call it an epidemic. And the reality is that there is such a thing as a spiritual virus as well. And what is more, we are not nearly as resistant to it as we think we are. Let me tell you something. We don't accept ideas because we think they make sense. We accept ideas because our hearts want to take us in that direction, and then our minds retroactively make them make sense. That's what we do. We're like a guy falling in love, a guy tumbling into an infatuation with a girl, and then explaining to all his friends and to his family all of her many good points, none of which he even thought of when he first saw her and fell for her. Yes, uh, human beings were created to be extremely vulnerable to seductive ideas. And whether they are right or wrong, whether they are true or false, we very often grab onto them and then retroactively construct an argument to validate them, making sense of our acceptance of them. Well, we've been hit with a virus of materialism. This wasn't today or yesterday. This has been going on for a few decades. And it's a very real virus. When I say materialism, let me just clarify one thing. Uh, materialism I'm speaking of is the opposite of spiritual. And spiritual is not a synonym for good, virtuous, moral, or religious. Right? There's bad spiritual just as there's good spiritual. Spiritual is very simply that which cannot be measured in a laboratory. So in other words, I'm not wearing my rabbi hat, I'm wearing my engineer hat. I'm using the word very specifically. Spiritual means something which cannot be measured in a lab. Material means something which can be measured in a lab. And it's important to note that much of what we find important in life is actually on the spiritual side, not the material side. I would go as far as to say that in the majority of cases, when we hire somebody to work for us in our business, we're hiring them for their spiritual characteristics, not their material attributes. The exception would be if we're hiring somebody to be a swimsuit model. Okay, that, that would be different. Remind me to tell you sometime of the uh, occasion when I once applied for a job as a swimsuit model, got rejected, and uh, it served to remind me that anti-Semitism is still alive and well, an evil bigotry, a scourge that kept me from a good job. But other than a swimsuit model, 
You're hiring people because of integrity, because of contacts. Very often you hire somebody because of their book, their, con their list of contacts. The contacts are spiritual. You might hire somebody because of their ability to explain, to talk, to speak, or to sell. All of that spiritual. Yes. And yet, a, an epidemic of materialism has spread across the country these many years. And what do I mean by an epidemic of materialism? Well, I mean that a critical percentage of the population has come to believe that only things that can be touched or felt or worn or driven are real. That there is nothing of reality in the world which cannot be touched or measured or seen or experienced physically. Well, when a majority of uh, the population, and I, I cannot tell you whether that means 55% or 75%, but when a substantial and significant proportion of a population becomes infected with the epidemic of materialism, there are earthquake-like consequences to that culture. And, uh, you know, for instance, um, have you noticed more and more recently there is the idea that you can combat ideas by silencing or disqualifying the speaker? Have you seen that? If we can disqualify the person making the argument, we've disqualified the argument. I remember uh, that um, there's a few. It was it was actually during the Reagan years. Um, a friend of mine called George Gilder wrote a book called Wealth and Poverty. It was a book that uh, ended up being um, somewhat influential in the Reagan administration in the eighties, nineteen eighty to eighty eight, and. Uh, the um, I went into a bookstore in Santa Monica, California, and I said, uh, do you have Wealth and Poverty, which was a fairly well-known book just then. And the woman behind the counter said, I wouldn't read that, nor would I stock it. I would never sell that to you. I said, oh, really? What is the book about? And she looked blankly at me, and I said, have you read the book? She said, I don't have to. It's written by that. And she uh, alluded to George Gilder in unflattering terms. Um, just because he was known to be a conservative person, both socially and financially, uh, she regarded his work as completely invalidated. Okay, this, this is not uncommon. Uh, we've um, think about this situation. I was talking a little while ago um, about the poor, and I, I said that for the most part, poor people are poor because they're not doing enough for other people rather than because anything is being withheld from them. The point I was making was that uh, money is created when you serve other human beings. Hence, it follows that for the majority of cases, and yes, there are exceptions, but in the majority of cases, uh, poor people are poor not because they're not being given enough money but because they are not doing enough for other people. And uh, I got castigated. And uh, somebody yelled at me and said, 
Uh, were you ever poor? Implying that if I wasn't, I had no right to speak. Well, uh, in my own definition of poor, I've never been poor. If the definition of poor is, did I always have enough money to match my desires? Then I guess I was poor. It's a tough word to define, much harder than you'd think. But nonetheless, my argument was completely invalidated because I've never been poor. I said uh, at the same, uh, on the same occasion, I said that in large numbers of poor people in America, the problem is that they are more depraved than deprived. I think that's fair to say. I think it's true. Well, did I get castigated again? Oh, my goodness. You've never been poor. How can you speak like that? Yeah, look, I, I've never been poor. I, th that is absolutely true. Thank God for that. More as a result of blessing than, than, than any particular virtue. But, um, but why? why does that invalidate the argument? Well... You see, if, uh, if materialism is all that counts, then the fundamental disagreements between human beings are over race, gender, class. And so, therefore, if I am of one class, I have absolutely no right to speak about anything having to do with another class. Uh, you'll see women doing this a lot as well. Feminist women will do it all the time now. Um, I said recently, most women, not all, most women are made very happy by a good, strong, masculine man. And also, I said, you know, vice versa also, that most men are made very happy by a sweet, strong, feminine woman. But no sooner had I said that most women are made very happy by a good, strong, masculine man, than I got told to shut up. You're not a woman. <laughs> Meaning what? That the argument cannot be analyzed on its own merit. That since there is no spiritual reality in the world, all that exists is the words or are the words I've just said. And so if we can shatter the words by disqualifying the speaker, then we don't have to pay any attention to the argument. It's weird. Um, you have it with race as well. Uh, this is a couple of years ago I was speaking and I said, uh, uh, look, we're not going to get anywhere until there is acceptance that the disproportionate number of violent crimes in America are perpetrated by young black males. Look, this is not controversial. This is not debatable. This is, this is FBI statistics. Um, you know, you, you turn on the television and they show footage of uh, you know, a, a whole crowd of young people rioting or attacking passers-by at a mall or in the streets. And uh, repeatedly, the uh, race of these young people um, causing fear and havoc in the streets is very clear, and yet nobody mentions it. It's, you're, not, you're not even allowed to speak about it. And when I did, somebody yells, you don't know what it means to be a black person. You've got no right to speak. 
Why? But more and more, people subscribe to this idea. You're not a woman, shut up. You're not black, you shut up. You're not poor, you keep quiet. A lot of people are buying into this idea. And uh, we're going to be talking just a little bit more about some of the damage that has been inflicted by the earthquake of materialism. What happens as more and more people start believing that the spiritual is irrelevant at best or doesn't exist at worst, all that matters is the material, and uh, the result is very serious. The result is silencing discussion and debate, uh, suppressing anything that doesn't adhere closely to the orthodox doctrine. This is pretty dangerous stuff for a free and open society. And this is what happens when the earthquake of materialism shakes up the ground of an entire culture. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit more as soon as we come back, but, but, but before we do that, as always, uh, the uh, resource that I recommend for a deeper understanding of not only the subject I'm speaking about today with you, but also other subjects, um, is called the Genesis Journeys Set. It's four audio CD packages, um, over eight hours of deep explanation, along with four study guides, and uh, you can read more about them. Just take a look at them on my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com, L-A-P-I-N, for those of you who aren't sure, L-A-P-I-N. It's French for rabbit, and don't make me start telling you about my grandfather, the rabbit farmer near Grenoble, France, from where the family name derived. You don't want me to go into that. But uh, what you do want to know is that uh, the, the uh, Genesis Journey set um, has programs on male-female relationships, on the development of socialism, uh, why it is that abortion and homosexuality almost always make their appearance in the final stages of a culture's decline, um, almost as, as if they were signposts on the road to extinction. And um, all of that you will find in the Genesis Journey set. I also, I also want to recommend that those of you with children of an appropriate age uh, start reading to your children aloud from my book, Business Secrets from the Bible. And I'll tell you as we move a little bit further along, I'll tell you how and why that is, because an understanding of finance is another casualty of the epidemic of the materialism earthquake. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how-did-it-fit-in-there box. You just let it unfold, and there you have it, 
one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America, and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where uh, I, your radio rabbi, reveal how the world really works. That's right. And uh, I'm speaking about what happens to a culture overtaken by an avalanche of materialism. Now, ordinarily, when people use the word materialism, they mean uh, somebody who's uh, just interested in acquiring things. You know, sometimes people will describe someone else, oh, she's so materialistic. But I don't think they're actually uh, referring to the full extent of what the word implies. When I say materialism, uh, we're talking about the opposite of spirituality. Uh, materialism meaning that only things that you can measure in a lab really matter. That's what I mean when I use the word materialism. And uh, uh, the idea that uh, everything can be determined by means of material solutions. The educational, uh, public education in America is a colossal tragedy. Well, it just needs more money. That's all. The idea that there is a spiritual failure there, a spiritual failure, perhaps more than one spiritual failure, but, you know, one is the idea of uh, parental and teacher authority. Uh, another one is uh, the importance of family in education. Now, materialists pay no heed to family at all because in the material world, the world of animals, and I don't regard humans as material, I think humans are predominantly spiritual with a material envelope, but animals are entirely material. And in the material world, there is no such thing as family. And so this is one of the reasons that materialists uh, find themselves consistently at odds with anything that is a pro-family position. Uh, abortion for a materialist is, is so simple and so straightforward that they literally don't understand my discomfort with it. They can't even deal with that. Um, materialism means that uh, if you can uh, block out words that disturb you, then you've eliminated the concept behind those words as well. You know how little kids, by the way, are materialists, right? Small kids are because they don't know enough yet. The spiritual world is not intuitive. Right? The material world is somewhat intuitive. You know, you know, you grow up, you've got a pretty good idea of, you know, what tastes good and what doesn't taste good. You, you, you feel thirsty, you've got to get water. Um, you even get to the point where you have an intuitive sense of uh, space, uh, weight, temperature, you understand those things. Not time, by the way, because time is much more spiritual than the others for reasons that 
I'm going to bypass for today's discussion. But uh, children do not get an intuitive sense. They don't, if they're not taught about a spiritual reality, if they're not given the antennae for picking it up, then they usually just don't. But, uh, but they do pick up the physical and the material. And so uh, what happens is that little kids, not being aware that there is a spiritual reality which can't be obliterated by wiping out the physical, uh, right? There, and there, there, there are many mistakes that people make like that, right? Where uh, uh, you remember the old days where pictures were developed from negatives, right? And uh, somebody would say, well, I'm going to, you know, blackmailers. This often showed up in television uh, mysteries where the blackmailed person has his hands on the pictures and says, well, I'm going to tear these up. There, torn them up. And the blackmailer smirks complacently and says, well, I've still got the negatives, right? Uh, you may think you're tearing up the reality, but the negative is still there. It still exists. And so uh, children often think that if they can block out the thing that's bothering them right now, it goes away. That's why sometimes when um, parents might say to little kids, well, we're getting close to bedtime, and little children put their uh, hands over their ears and they hold their hands firmly over their ears and they shake their heads and they say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, right? And so if they don't hear you say it's now bedtime, then it won't be now bedtime, right? Because if you are a materialist, then only that thing which is visible right now in front of you, namely a parent saying, uh, you're going to bed now, uh, is is real. If you can block that away, then everything goes away. And this is exactly what materialists do on the university campuses, right? Uh, you're obviously familiar with the huge number of speakers who have been uh, denied the opportunity to say the words for which they were engaged and paid to come and say those words. Whether it's Ali Anan Hersey, the, uh, the Dutch woman who speaks out against Islam, uh, Charles Murray uh, of the Bell Curve uh, notoriety, a fantastic scholar uh, who was blocked from Middlebury College recently by uh, violent hoodlums. And there, there are many, many, many such cases. All the back, I mean, Condoleezza Rice years ago was blocked from speaking at one of the colleges because of her connection with the Bush administration. And so the idea is if we can silence, it's li literally a little kid uh, gripping his hands over his ears and saying, nah, 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 I don't want to hear, I don't want to listen. That's exactly what it is, because uh, if university students who are today's high priests of materialism don't want to hear something, then, then that's exactly how they deal with it. It's exactly what they do about it and, uh, and try and make it vanish <laughs> in that fashion. Uh, you, you can suppress the idea and sort of make them go away just by making sure that you don't actually hear it. And, and that's, again, one of the other, uh, of numerous examples of the fallout of the spreading epidemic of materialism. Materialism, right, uh, it's an outgrowth of, of secularism, naturally. And uh, we, we find that, um, uh, you know, movies... Um, it's easy to see how movies have changed over the years. The 
the the spiritual component of life today largely omitted from movies. I mean, the closest they come to uh, to anything non-materialistic is uh, stupid horror things about vampires. That's about it. But uh, movies that contained genuine spiritual significance. Uh, you know, just a simple example. There's so many wonderful examples, but a sound, The Sound of Music, uh, back in 1965, was an example, right? And that was pretty much the end, I think. Pretty much the end of it, where uh, the movie did speak of spiritual strength. It was the strength to stand up against the evil materialism of the Nazis. That was part of it. Uh, there was the family. There was the spiritual strength that uh, that the, um, the 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 children's tutor Maria exhibited. Uh, there were there were many many beautiful examples of it. And uh, and today we find movies that uh, make absolutely clear that materialism has taken over. Uh, movies obviously reflect much of the reality of society. I think movies are wonderful echoes of what's really going on in the culture and so uh, and so we can we can really tell for instance that once upon a time movies really carried significance in terms of of spiritual reality today not so at all so much so by the way that i don't think that Anybody could even relate. If, you're not, if you don't actually have memory of this, which I myself do not, it is very difficult to relate to what the state of America was in, in you know, prior to the early 1960s. And one of the best examples of this is the last movie that the great director, Cecil DeMille, actually made. It was called The Ten Commandments. And that was made in 1956. Now, this this was his last movie, and uh, it is either the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth highest grossing movie of all time, depending on how you count it and how you figure out the change in the value of the dollar since 1956. But however you count it, it's in the top ten of the biggest movies ever made. It's pretty amazing. What we do know for sure is it is the uh, it's the third highest. No, it's the second. It was the highest grossing religious epic until Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. But uh, until then, no religious movie had ever made more. And uh, this is we're talking in in beyond Gone with the Wind territory here. The Ten Commandments was a big, big movie. Uh, It used 15,000 extras. Right, they didn't use uh, computer-generated crowd scenes. They had fifteen thousand people. They used fifteen thousand animals for making the movie. I mean, this was when making movies was really making movies. It, it's it's pretty incredible. And uh, uh, so, anyways, um, the uh, the reason I mention it is because at the beginning of the movie, this is something I. I don't remember seeing in another movie. This is pretty striking. At the beginning of the movie, along comes Cecil B. DeMille. He sort of steps out through the curtain as the director, and he says, this is a little unusual. Before we actually get into this movie, 
uh, which, by the way, runs uh, about more than two and a half hours. He says, uh, I want to tell you a little bit. And this was such a big speech that Cecil Cecil DeMille makes at the introduction to the movie. I'm actually going to play it for you, if you don't mind. It's just a, a minute or two. But I want you to listen to it because I want you to ask yourself, could you imagine a top Hollywood studio putting out a movie today with this kind of introduction? Could you imagine such a thing? I don't think so. It's, it's really astounding and worth hearing. Listen to this now. Ladies and gentlemen, young and old, this may seem an unusual procedure, speaking to you before the picture begins, but we have an unusual subject, the story of the birth of freedom, the story of Moses. As many of you know, The Holy Bible omits some 30 years of Moses' life. From the time he was a three-month-old baby and was found in the bulrushes by by Bethia, the daughter of Pharaoh, and adopted into the court of Egypt until he learned that he was Hebrew and killed the Egyptian. To fill in those missing years, we turn to ancient historians such as Philo and Josephus. Philo wrote at the time that Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, and Josephus wrote some 50 years later and watched the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. These historians had access to documents long since destroyed, or perhaps lost, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. The theme of this picture is whether men are to be ruled by God's law or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like Ramesses. Are men the property of the state, or are they free souls under God? This same battle continues throughout the world today. Our intention was not to create a story, but to be worthy of the divinely inspired story created 3,000 years ago the five books of Moses. The story takes three hours and 39 minutes to unfold. There will be an intermission. Thank you for your attention. Well, there you go. Gosh. And the the movie ended, not with the words, the end, but with a phrase, um, so so it was spoken, so it was written, and so it... uh, it, it happened, something like that. It's sort of with a very, in other words, attesting to the truth of the entire story of, of the Ten Commandments. It's pretty remarkable stuff. Um, okay, so that's, um, uh, that's it on this segment. When we come back, I want to show you perhaps the most significant impact that materialism has had on the culture, and that is in the area of money, business, finance, and Uh, Very serious, very significant. We're going to take a a look at that. And we're also going to take a look at um, uh, racial consequences of materialism. In in fact, I think we'll start with that, and then we'll go on to the finance. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, right now, the the, uh, featured uh, product, the featured resource, is something I, I really can't recommend highly enough. If you don't have it, I'm just going to flatly say you need it. If, if you're finding any value at all in these shows, 
uh, then you need this resource. It's, it, it's as simple as that because if what I am able to convey in these shows is a five or a six, then the Genesis Journey set is a nine or a ten. And uh, yes, I know it sounds self-promotional. I may even sound as if I'm escalating obnoxiousness to uh, to uh, escalating self-promotion to new <laughs> levels of obnoxiousness, um, but uh, that's it's it it is a reality. So uh, take a look at it. It's uh, the Genesis Journey set. It's four audio programs along with four study guides, and um, I think you will find it to be uh, immensely useful. Uh, one of them is all about uh, the the battles of the Middle East, why they fight, what's really behind the struggles between the Koran and the civilizations of the Bible. Uh, another one is about male-female relationships. Another one is how homosexuality and abortion inevitably become one of the milestones on the road to a culture's extinction. Yes, extinction. And uh, one of them is uh, about how uh, uh, socialism or progressivism or communism is not something that Karl Marx dreamed up at all. It goes back very, very far, all the way to the Bible, as a matter of fact, with a very clear blueprint of what is really going on there. So all of that at RabbiDanielLappin.com, and I'll be back in just a moment with the impact materialism has had on uh, making race an enormous problem in America, a bigger problem than it has been since the days of slavery. Back with you in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody. Back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, solemnly dedicate myself to revealing for you precisely how the world really works. And in uh, 2004, the great... Pope Benedict XVI, the former great Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, said something very uh, insightful. He said, um, he wrote an essay called If Europe Hates Itself. And what he said is that the West reveals a hatred of itself, which is strange and can only be considered pathological. The West no longer loves itself, in its own history, it now sees only that which is deplorable and destructive, while it is no longer able to perceive what is great and pure. And, of course, that's absolutely right. Uh, why is this yet another casualty of the epidemic of materialism that has swept our country over the last few decades? Well, the reason is because although uh, the mind of people insists that they are materialistic. It, it, the people have persuaded themselves and wanted to persuade themselves that there is no God, there is no book of divine rules and structures, there is no such thing as two millennia of rules and rituals and restraints of religion that have helped to make America what it has been, that uh, they, they reject any notion of anything spiritual. But the problem is that their beings still retain a soul. And so 
their minds are saying, no, 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 we are nothing but $9 worth of common chemicals. And as a result of that, anything that ails us can always be solved materialistically. In other words, no matter what is going on in our lives, somewhere there has to be a psychiatrist who can give us a little green pill that will make us feel happy or optimistic or get rid of our sadness. But they utterly reject the notion that there is any spiritual foundation to depression, that there is anything that can be resolved in a way that has to do with God and the soul as opposed to the psychiatrist and the tablets. So, uh, meanwhile, built into the human being, whether we like it or not, is a desire to give of ourselves, a desire to sacrifice. It's one of the reasons that we have children. It's not a conscious reason, but the fact we like hearing children say, Mommy, come here, I need you, or Daddy, can you help me? We like hearing children say that. Uh, we also find ourselves reaching maximum fulfillment and maximum inner happiness from giving to others. That's why I've explained in my book, Bear, uh, Business Secrets from the Bible, um, I've explained that spending gives us a high. There's no question about it. Spending money gives us a high. Shopping gives us a high. But uh, like any drug-induced high, uh, the trip can be painful, particularly coming down at the end of the trip, which in the area of shopping means when the bill comes at the end of the month. Uh, precisely the same high or better comes from giving. It really does. And, uh, it, you know, people are not aware of it. People haven't tried it, and so many people don't know this. But giving actually gives you a bigger lift, a bigger high than shopping does. Again, this only makes sense if you recognize that materialism isn't the entirety of our natures. It's not all we are. And so what do you do if you're a materialist and uh, you may not even have children, you may not believe in children, you may, uh, uh, you, and you certainly are, are not giving because something we do know is that in general the left likes government to give and do not give much themselves. Uh, conservatives do tend to be much more generous. It's fairly well known. And uh, the, the, the problem is that people who are materialists are left with the enigma of how, how do I solve this need to sort of give. And the way they do it um, is essentially through self-denigration denigration of family, denigration of culture, uh, denigration of history. And so because of an educational system that has been in the hands of materialists for four decades or more, um, American school children do not know anything about the glorious past of America. All they know about is slavery. That's it. Uh, despoiling the environment. Uh, Christopher Columbus was a racist. These are the things that children are being taught in school, and a whole lot worse. And this is because it gives materialists a feeling of sacrifice. It gives them a feeling, an inner feeling of virtue. It satisfies that deep need that all of us have to know that in ourselves, when you get right down to it, our lives do mean more than just getting born and eating and procreating and dying. And that we really do stand for something. Well, we stand to fight the evil. What evil? 
Well, no evil that I'm actually doing, but evil that society is doing. Which society? American society, of course. And uh, and there again, we, we see the consequence of materialism coming out in a tremendous self-hatred, inevitable and uh, and, um, and and predictable consequence of materialism. Uh, there's another one, and that is the obsession with race. So, so you know, it, it, it's hard to believe that it's only a few decades ago that Martin Luther King spoke about the content of people's characters, me being more important than the color of the skin. Well, needless to say, nobody believes that anymore. Uh, certainly materialists don't believe it. And again, if you are a materialist, then the color of the skin is, is pretty important. If you're not, if you are somebody for whom spiritual reality is true, and for somebody for who recognizes that the human being is a soul wrapped in a body, not a body that contains a soul, and certainly not a body without a soul. And so the, uh, the, the reality that is left for the materialist is that, well, yes, skin color is terribly important. And what do they, what do, they do? Well, they say, in, not in so many words, but they say that, look, uh, if I was about to buy a horse, would the color of the horse's skin not be a feature? Of course. In fact, for, for many people, in fact, you know, many young girls love the idea of having a pony. Uh, they don't know breeds. They just know colors. You know, I want a black horse. I want a whatever it is. Skin color matters if you are a materialist. And for people who believe that human beings are simply one other creature on the spectrum of evolution, well then, if skin color matters in distinguishing crocodiles from alligators, why shouldn't skin color matter for human beings? And of course it does. And uh, the old idea that we measure people and we judge one another by our spiritual outlook and by our behavior vanishes, and all of a sudden, we now judge one another by rich or poor, male or female, or now uh, a very wide spectrum of gender choices, and uh, by skin color. That's what we do. And so the obsession with skin color, I mean, and it's aggravated as, as America was carried further and further into the direction of materialism during the Obama presidency, and uh, while not being moved quite as aggressively during the uh, George W. Bush presidency, uh, nothing much was done to obstruct the slide during those years. And so uh, it's really been a very rapid move towards materialism over the last 20, or 20 years or so. And uh, the, the results have obviously uh, been evidently destructive and it's obvious to anybody with eyes in their head and so uh, what are some of the things that happened well last in in 2016 there was a supreme court case called fisher versus the university of texas it was a um, two white women one of whose name was fisher um, sued the university of texas what happened well all predictable you all know uh, it has to do with uh, admission bias and uh, and uh, uh, taking away the idea that admission to university is on merit. 
and replacing it with the idea that there's a preferred admission for minorities. And the whole thing is code-worded throughout. Anyways, what they uh, claimed, rightfully as it turned out, was that uh, there were people whose grades were lower than theirs, but whose skin color was a different skin color, who got in and they were rejected. So although their uh, grades were sufficient to gain admission, they lost out because of being the wrong skin color. And they sued and they said, look, this is... Uh, this is really not what things are supposed to be in America. Anyways, they unfortunately, that Fisher versus University of Texas in 2016 was a very, very sad case because um, uh, they lost and the University of Texas was um, uh, validated, if you like, was encouraged to continue selecting admissions on the basis of skin color. Now, the Gallup polling organization, when that uh, Supreme Court case came out in 2016, Gallup polling actually did a poll asking people of every, all kinds of different backgrounds how they felt about the idea of race-based admission. And um, over 60% of the country disagreed with the idea. Uh, if you break it down racially, 76% uh, of whites uh, thought race-based admission was a bad idea. 60% of Hispanics thought it was a bad idea. And what percentage of blacks do you think, right? And if you thought that since blacks are the primary beneficiaries of race-based admission, surely uh, blacks overwhelmingly support it. Well, as a matter of fact, 50% uh, of blacks said colleges should admit applications solely on merit. In other words, half of people in America with black skin said that admission to universities should be based entirely on merit, which is amazing. So what is it? How are the other side, how is the other side so utterly out of touch with the reality? Why is it that they are so sure that race-based admission is so critical and so important? Well, uh, this goes back to, to something I have discussed more completely in earlier uh, shows in which uh, we've discussed the fact that until about, and again, everything comes back to the early 60s. Uh, what happened in the early 60s? Well, the interstate highway system um, came into being. Uh, air travel began to be uh, easily affordable for everybody. And the result was that instead of people going to colleges and universities near their hometowns, all of a sudden um, people were able to move across the country for college. And that meant that there emerged a class of uh, super colleges, supremo colleges, uh, elitist colleges, that admitted people of very high IQ, or at least uh, high IQ, if you like. Uh, various uh, is, is, is a term that is not easy to define, but whatever it is, uh, they, uh, they admitted people on IQ. So you ended up with universities uh, 
built up, and, and of course a generation has gone by, so now the people staffing the universities are the people who were originally in those universities. All those radicals who were burning down libraries and holding sit-ins in university presidents' offices in the late 1960s are now the professors with tenure running the show. What's wrong with that? Well, because uh, there's a very big difference between wisdom and intelligence. There's a very big difference between uh, street knowledge, knowing how the world really works, and intelligence. You don't need super high intelligence to function. As a matter of fact, super high intelligence very often removes you from reality. It's one of the reasons there's an expression, too smart for his own good. And I, I cover this again in uh, Business Secrets from the Bible, which is an important book, I think. And I explain that uh, for purposes of thriving economically, for purposes of making money, uh, a too high intelligence is as much a detriment as too low an intelligence. And uh, the proof of this is well known. Anybody in the financial services industries knows that academics, people in universities, people in that area are notoriously horrible, horrible at business, horrible at managing money. There is such a thing as just being too smart for your own good. And so universities became those places uh, populated by and run by people detached from uh, the world of the spiritual, detached from reality, detached from the wisdom uh, that has uh, guided people for centuries and centuries. And uh, they basically set about to create a brave new world. And that is what has happened. Little did anybody know, back in the 60s and 70s, little did anybody know the extent to which the universities would come to dominate the culture by putting out the people who uh, began to run the show in politics, uh, put out people who began to play a role, amazingly enough, in entertainment and media, and uh, above all, in, uh, in newspapers, in, in journalism. And so, not surprisingly, the influencers, the opinion makers, the idea generators of society uh, began to all come from the same little clump of universities that had gathered together this extraordinary group. Well, the problem is that uh, there are, and, and here I, I quote Thomas Sowell, who is a, uh, an abs a national treasure, uh, that Thomas Sowell is not highlighted in the African-American Heritage Museum in Washington, D.C., is scandalous, but at the same time extraordinarily revealing. Thomas Sowell is a black economist who is uh, beyond brilliant. He's, he's incredible. And uh, he is of an age where he is not that worried or frightened of his career anymore. And so uh, what makes him so beguiling to read is that he, he just says it like it is. And, you know, he points out how it is that uh, different racial groups, and when, before I go any further on that, let me just say that I know full well that the American Anthropological Association and many other uh, academic organizations have now ruled that there is no such thing as race. Race is just a social construct. Well, when you hear them say that, remember they're the same people who say sex and gender have no reality. They're also just social constructs. Uh, Almost anybody who doesn't have a complete uh, lack of confidence in his own 
understanding of the world could possibly believe the idea that there is no such thing as uh, as races. Of course there are. Um, whether, the, whether there are three races or whether there are four races in the world, uh, there, there is some discussion. But certainly nobody would say that there's only one race in the world except people who have a PhD after their names. And uh, Saul points out how different racial groups, different national groups, people have different skills, different areas, different uh, aptitudes, and, um, and he shows the consequence of that in countries and cultures around the world. And uh, he also obviously addresses the fact that on average there are IQ differences within racial groups. Uh, for, you know, people used to think that Jews who may or may not constitute a racial group, probably do not, I don't think, um, used to have a very high IQ. Well, now that uh, the measurement has been applied more consistently and more widely, it's perfectly clear that East Asians have a higher IQ than Jews. Uh, in fact, they have the highest IQ. Uh, there are different groups that, on average, have lower IQ. Uh, black Americans, on average, do tend to have... Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with you or you or me or anybody else. In other words, individuals are all individuals. But as long as you're going to obsess about grouping Americans into blacks and whites, then you've got a real problem because if you then average it out, in other words, you know, add up all IQs, divided by the number of whites, divided by the number of blacks, divided by the number of Asians... Uh, you find that it really does uh, look like layers of a, of a cake. And, uh, and in fact, blacks do not have, on average, again, nothing, it means absolutely nothing for any individual in any group at all, but uh, it is a, an objective, measurable fact which makes academics really uncomfortable. And so if you were to make... Uh, the criteria for admission to top universities, intelligence, which is exactly what they do. That is essentially what the SAT is, a politically acceptable intelligence test. And uh, if you're going to make it strictly IQ-based, then it is unavoidable that you will have a majority of people there will be uh, Asians, and, um, and then there'll be... Uh, uh, fewer of the fewer whites and fewer Jews and fewer blacks and fewer Hispanics, and you know that's that's just how how it's going to be. Well, this is a frightening and horrific concept uh, for the creators of that system, and it is a horrible system because, look, do you pick people you hire on the basis of IQ? You'd be crazy. Do you pick your friends on the basis of IQ? You'd be crazy, right? You you pick it on the basis of spiritual characteristics of integrity and honesty and loyalty, all of these things that are very important. Now, they're tough to measure, very tough to measure. Some would say impossible to measure. But nonetheless, for them to carry no weight at all in admission in university um, is a terrible mistake. So instead of saying, let us um, make a, a varied admission scale that measures how well you did on the SAT, and it should measure uh, what you've done for other people during your school years, um, and it should measure um, how good you've been to your parents and your siblings. It should measure what you've done for the community. It should measure your honesty and your integrity. And from all of those things put together, we'll decide who to admit to university. And I don't think anybody would have the slightest objection. Um, but when they say skin color, 
Now, that's something entirely different because I can't do anything about my skin color. When they say intelligence should be the criteria for entry, can't do anything about that either. I am who I am, right? Uh, so the problem is that, um, well, one of the things that happened is that um, uh, racial preferences have been used for a number of years in universities to try and obscure the fact that since they've created an IQ-based system, and since there are differences in racial groups of average IQ, this sort of pops out like a sore thumb in university admissions. So now they had to make a race-based uh, preferential admission, and that would solve the problem, excepting that what it's doing is that qualified people whose skin is white are being kept out and don't like that very much. And what's more, large numbers of Asians who on their merits should have got in, or at least since we're measuring IQ on that basis, they should get in, they're being kept out. And they're mighty upset about that as well. So um, uh, an Asian guy by the name of Mr. Lee, L.I., he filed a complaint with the Education Department's Office of Civil Rights in 2006 because he was denied admission to Princeton University. Okay, he got a perfect score on his SAT. He's probably got a massive IQ. And look, I think it's a mistake to admit people on the basis of IQ. But if that's what you're going to do, that's what you should do. You can't then throw in skin color as well. But that's exactly what the government does. And so Mr. Lee didn't get uh, accepted um, to Princeton, and he, he sued, claiming they violated his civil rights laws banning discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin. And initially it was rejected, and they said tough luck, uh, but he appealed, and the government reopened the investigation in 2008. That's under Obama. Obama took his full term to um, respond, basically took his sweet time over that, and um, eventually ruled saying, yeah, he lost. Uh, Princeton is perfectly within its rights to do race-based admissions. So um, uh, the um, uh, – and so uh, what happened was they then went, took the case back and they filed a freedom of information request with the education department because they want to get access to the same documents that the federal government used to uh, say Princeton did nothing wrong by accepting uh, lower people of the right skin color as opposed to Mr. Lee of the wrong skin color or the wrong racial group. And um, he is part of a whole bunch of Asian plaintiffs who are also suing Harvard University, exactly the same thing. In that case, by the way, the judge has ordered Harvard to hand over six years of admissions records. And the, Harvard has tried to avoid doing that because it's going to show without a doubt. I guarantee you this, by the way. That's me, your rabbi, and I, I wouldn't lie to you. Guaranteed that that will show that Harvard is imposing uh, caps on Asian enrollment. In other words, they're saying we will never have more than X percent of Asians. Even if they'll, they uh, merit to get in, we will keep their numbers down and take people with different skin colors who, uh, who have lower uh, records. Now, as I said, I think uh, IQ is a horrible way to admit people. I think it's had a lot to do with the damage that's been inflicted on America. But that is what's happened. That's what, that's what we've done. And uh, the result is some really interesting lawsuits. We're waiting to see what's going to happen. 
there are freedom of information requests filed with Harvard. There's freedom of information requests filed with Princeton. And uh, Princeton sued the Education Department back to block the FOIA Freedom of Information Act. Uh, Princeton said, we don't want to be kicking and screaming. We don't want to release these numbers. Because, again, it's going to show that they are fiddling around on the basis of national origin and skin color. And um, what's going to happen? I, I don't think they're going to win eventually, especially under the uh, Trump administration. I think they are probably going to have to uh, show. And... Um, uh, and when those numbers come out that show the number of Asians who have applied to Princeton, and it shows their very high SAT scores, and uh, it'll then show, it will reveal the other information that the school has used, and that information is, uh, is race-based, and something that increasingly large numbers of Americans want to see eliminated from the system. All of this huge mess created because of materialism that skin color is important. Martin Luther King would not believe America if he came back and took a look at what's going on. We are saying that the content of your character, what kind of human being you are, matters nothing at all. Skin color is what it's all about. And uh, this is tragic. This is horrible for people of every skin color. It's, it's horrible for every American. It's just bad news. But once you set foot onto that down escalator of materialism, there's no, there's, no coming, there's no coming back. You can't walk back up that escalator. Your only hope is to get off it. Is there any chance of America getting off this escalator? Well, the one hope is that uh, the damage being done is so severe and uh, the damage inflicted is so serious that it'll force um, some kind of recognition. And I'll explain what that could be um, coming right back. Website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, make sure you're subscribed to Thought Tools, please. Make sure that uh, you are um, getting the emails that you want to get. Uh, write to me if you'd like to do that. Uh, take a look at Susan's Musings. There's a whole lot of stuff on the website that uh, you're welcome to browse around and take a look at. And uh, also, please take a look at the special on a um, resource called the Genesis Journeys Set. It's eight hours of audio teaching uh, plus a whole lot more. RabbiDanielLappin.com is where it is. And also use the opportunity to go to my website. Drop me a line. Love hearing from you. You can, um, you can comment on the website. And if you take a look, you'll see that uh, Susan and I are very good with responding to people who take the trouble to write to us on the website. So um, quick break here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show while your rabbi uh, refreshes himself with a cup of tea and returns in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you again, looking at materialism. And the, the last area in which materialism has inflicted dreadful damage on America uh, and which ultimately uh, might turn out to be the antidote in the sense that the damage is so severe that possibly even they will get it. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, um, the, the city of Baltimore uh, was uh, one of many cities 
that decided that they needed to institute a $15 an hour minimum wage. Now, if there's one thing that Baltimore does not need, I mean, it's a very, very troubled city. The one thing it doesn't need is a mass exodus of businesses uh, that have left because the cost of employees is unreasonable. Um, and essentially what, what Baltimore was saying, and one of the people that was running for mayor used this as her campaign, that she is going to raise the minimum wage to $15. And everybody said, oh, goody, goody, that's, that's for me, you know. And people don't realize that um, a $15 imaginary job is not nearly as good as a real job that pays $9 an hour because that's what the market makes reasonable. The employer can make money at that. All right? You force somebody to pay his employees $15 an hour, he'll either get rid of employees or move somewhere else. I mean, it's, it's, it's so basic. Anyway, what was fascinating was that um, uh, to the dismay of many, this woman who had been campaigning on a $15 an hour minimum wage in the city of Baltimore, she won. She became the mayor. Guess what was one of the first things she did? She abandoned that. Oh, did that get her base upset? Oh, she was a traitor to the working people. But, you know, again, uh, we're looking at the triumph of materialism. And, uh, and she, when she actually looked at what it boiled down to, and she was looking particularly at Baltimore's uh, payroll, which is already in the red to hundreds of million, well over $100 million a year. And it's not as if Baltimore is a big, busy, thriving city. I mean, it's a, it's a city in very bad shape. But um, she quickly reneged on that. In other words, bludgeoned by reality. And very often that is the cure. Because when push comes to shove, you can only play games uh, with, loose and uh, flimsy ideas. But when you get down to numbers, it's a whole lot different. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of the craziness on the university campus is restricted to the liberal arts departments. It's the literature and the, uh, well, you know them all. I mean, but why don't you get the same nuttiness in the mathematics department or in the physics department? Well, because you can say what you like. And you can ban speakers as much as you like, but you're not going to be able to change 2 plus 2 into anything but 4, and you're not going to be able to make gravity go away. Right? There's, it's easier to see the fixed immutable qualities of life in the, uh, in the uh, science, technology, engineering, math departments than it is in the liberal arts departments. And so... Uh, bludgeoned by reality very often means the numbers come home to roost. And that's what happened to the mayor of Baltimore. No more $15 an hour minimum wage in Baltimore. Not happening. Uh, it couldn't. It's ridiculous. It would be incredibly destructive. Uh, as it is almost every time that the government interferes with the marketplace. Well, the, uh, the area in which the triumph of materialism has inflicted so much damage is, of course, in the area of money. 
why, what's, what is happening. Well, I only want to speak about one area. I mean, we could do three shows on this, but there's only time for one crucial example, and that is the incredible, shocking mystery of why it is that there is no financial education in American high schools, and neither is it a requirement in American colleges. Why would that be? And there is only one explanation, and that is that uh, materialism is always uncomfortable with money. And it's uncomfortable with money the more abstract the money gets. In other words, if the person making a lot of money is a star quarterback in the National Football League, materialists have no problem with that. Because obviously that man can run with a ball faster than anybody else and get it to where it needs to go. And that's materialistic. We get it. It's not hard to understand. He earns his money honestly. A movie star, right? Why do materialists who uh, predominate in Hollywood not get all embarrassed about the fact that they get paid a fortune of money, uh, you know, for, for very little? Well, because they understand that uh, the sun you know, glinted off their eyes or their teeth at just the right angle, so they got picked for a movie. And, uh, and this is uh, something that is adulated by millions of people. And again, it's, um, it, it's something that, on, from a materialistic point of view, makes sense. But the area that drives materialists crazy is when a uh, CEO, a person who's brought into head a troubled company, and gets it right again and walks away with, you know, the same sort of money that a, a movie star or a, a NFL star makes, you know, $20 million or something or maybe more. Uh, now they get, materialists get very upset with that because they do not understand at all what that person does for his money. That they don't get. And so uh, they come up with all kinds of attempts to, uh, to regularly inject their version of morality and saying, well, CEOs are paid too much and footballers are not and movie stars are not. No, because materialists can comprehend that deal, but they cannot comprehend the financial deal. But still, why, when materialists have been in charge of American education for so many years, how can they possibly omit something so basic? After all, they pretend that education is preparing people for full and productive lives as happy citizens. That's what they pretend. Regardless of the bizarre courses that are offered to students in uh, virtually all the school districts around the country, in, in public school, if there's anything that they're not doing it's preparing students for life in the real world, but since they claim that that's exactly what they are doing, why would they not include a course on finance? Now, I'm not saying that it has to be something so complex that high school teachers wouldn't be able to teach it because they don't know it themselves. I'm not saying that. Look, here's something you might want to try. If you know a teenager that you can talk to seriously, why don't you sit down with a teenager and, uh, and say to them, 
something along these lines. So I'm curious to know, uh, what do you plan on doing after you finish school? And, um, and then drill down and say, you know, when it gets right down to it, as you know, as you know it takes money to live. Uh, how are you planning on making money? And if the person says, well, I'm going to become a rock star or I'm going to become a, uh, a National Football League player or I'm going to invent an app or I'm going to come up with some software and become a millionaire, you know, say to them, all right, but if that plan doesn't work, what's plan B? What would you do for plan B? And what you want to do is you want to get them to the point where they will say to you, well, you know, I'm going to um, uh, be a... A social worker or I'm going to be a bookkeeper or I'm going to learn to be a machinist or I'm going to uh, become a plumbing uh, apprentice whatever it is and then you say to them now how much do you think you will make a month for the you know during the first year on that job more than likely they're going to come up with something unrealistic and then what I want you to do is say to them here is a pen and a piece of paper You've told me that you think you're going to make, and, you know, they're going to come up with a figure of a few thousand dollars a month, which is higher than the reality, And but it doesn't matter. Say to them now, would you give me an idea? I want you to write down how what you're going to do with that whatever it is, $3,000 or $1,500 or whatever they say. Please break it down for a budget uh, for your for a, on a monthly basis. Some of them may not even know what you're talking about. They may not know what you're asking for. And so you're going to have to explain. I want you to tell me how you're going to use that money during the first month. What's it going to go for? And what you want them to do is to go ahead and write down rent, and you want them to go ahead and write down entertainment and clothing, etc., etc. And uh, you are going to be as fascinated as I am whenever I try this um, experiment uh, when you discover that um, how little they know. Oh, by the way, when this little, when they've gone through it, you might want to say to them, "I didn't see you put anything down for tax, for taxes. There's state tax, there's federal tax, um, there's also uh, uh, various other deductions off your. You didn't, you didn't have a category for that. They can, oh, I thought you meant net. What, what's coming to me? So so you're saying that you actually think you're going to be paid more than you originally said, right? And they're going to have to say yes, which is now even more unrealistic. And, uh, and you're going to be able to see that nobody but nobody has bothered to teach this youngster anything at all about financial reality. So why not? And I'm talking about high school. I mean, we're talking basic stuff. I'm not talking about the mathematics of financial derivatives. You know, we're talking about just basic stuff, not done in school, not at all. Why would that be? Well, number one, materialists are uncomfortable with money altogether. Uh, they feel that uh, it's fine to teach little kids about sex, including bizarre manifestations of abnormal sex. They're happy with that because that's all materialistic. It's what animals do, so that's fine. But money, no animals use money. And therefore, it is suspect. It is clearly outside the realm of pure materialism. And they're uncomfortable with that. They would feel as if they are tarnishing 
the educational system by introducing money. That's part of it. There's another part which I think is a little more sinister, and that is that uh, only through financial independence do you ever become independent of the government. In other words, in any society where a government is trying to expand control, for instance, by taking over the entire medical sector, uh, whenever a government is trying to enhance and increase the control it has over its subjects, over its citizens, over its society, one of the things they try to do is remove financial independence. High taxes usually go a long way towards achieving that. Obstacles towards starting up uh, your own private business, and uh, that's part of it. Encouraging people to addict themselves to government handouts, whether it's uh, Obama phones or, or whether it's uh, food stamps, which were enormously increased under the Obama administration, not because there were more people in need, but because the Obama administration wanted to addict more people to the government. All of that makes people more compliant. It makes people more docile. And uh, the more education about money you give to young people in high school or even in college, uh, the less likely they are to fall victim to uh, strategies that materialists use to seize and retain control. It, this is pretty tragic stuff. It's pretty sad. But it is just possible that they may find themselves bludgeoned by reality. And I do suspect that if there is ever going to be a blow struck against the, uh, the, the ongoing attempt of materialism to steamroller our society, if there is going to be any chance of striking back, my suspicion is that it could well come in the financial area. And that's why I particularly think it's valuable and why I particularly think that uh, there is enormous value in talking money with your children your grandchildren, your neighbor's children, any time you have an opportunity to be influential, with it, just talk to them. You know, talk to them about making a living. What are you going to do for money? How are you going to spend it? How are you going to make it? How much would you like to make? Just it, it introduces uh, an area of discussion that most times children do not have access to. Uh, one of the things that I recommend that you do is that you get yourself a copy of my book, Business Secrets from the Bible, Business Secrets from the Bible, and uh, go ahead and read it aloud. You know, the chapters are short, and uh, you can do it at a dinner table, you can do it uh, anytime, and you read it together, stop when they have questions, have them stop you and, and clarify something. And, um, and that way you're able to have the opportunity of introducing reality in an area that is really helpful and easier to introduce reality. You know, when you're talking about abstract things in society, you know, constitution, constitutionality and government and all, these are all very important, very true things, but it's really easier to expose the fatal flaws of socialism and materialism. Uh, when it comes to money. The book is called uh, Business Secrets from the Bible. And if you go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, you'll see it. And uh, that means that uh, it is time for us to start saying goodbye. 
which I'm always reluctant to do uh, each week when they have, we have this opportunity to be together. I love hearing from you, so please go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Let me know what you're thinking, and, uh, and I do respond to that. I really do. I, I react and I respond. And uh, would love it also if you take a look at uh, the set Genesis Journeys, the Genesis Journey set. You'll see all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, but make sure you get a copy of Business Secrets from the Bible. I don't care where you get it, either at RabbiDanielLappin.com or at online bookstores, wherever you want. And use it as a, uh, a read-aloud book, something that will introduce conversation that you really want to have with young people. Can't stress that enough and very much hope that you do do that. Um, and so, with uh, no time left for us in this particular show... Uh, thank you very much for being part of the show. I very much appreciate you bringing it to the attention of people you think might like it and sharing it. That helps me as well. And, uh, and I thank those of you who have been doing that, obviously very effectively. And uh, I want to wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network.